I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Just before we get this next history hack outing going, we would just like to extend the most incredible thanks to everybody for the support you've given us so far. The podcast has just passed 1 million downloads which has completely blown our minds. So from Alex, Zach, myself, all the guys down the pub, we just want to say thank you so much. And to keep doing what you're doing, spread the word, tell your friends, like, subscribe, review. Remember, there's a Patreon. It's got its own Discord channel now where there's chat and things on it. There's Ko-Fi for dropping us a tip for an episode you'd like. There's the bookshop where all the latest books from our great guests are. And of course, just tell everybody about us because the next million downloads we hope will come a lot quicker and who knows what is going to come up in the next year. So thank you once again. I'm going to stop waffling. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to History Hacks, dedicated Second World War air power podcast hedge hopping with me, Matt Bone. Now we like to do big anniversaries on this show. So I'm delighted to say we're only a week late with this one because on the 18th of February, 1944, the de Havilland Mosquitoes of 140 wing led by group captain Charles Pick Picard flew a death or glory operation to Amiens prison. Their mission was to aid the escape of members of the French resistance by breaching its walls. It was a daring mission that has since passed into legend under the unofficial name of Operation Jericho. But that mission was flown at the cost of hundreds of lives later. So today I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Robert Lyman, who we all know, but let's introduce him anyway. He is a writer, historian, and a research fellow at the Changing Character of War Centre, Pembroke College, University of Oxford. Amazingly, he's written 17 books now, two of which are on the Amiens prison raid. The Jailbusters, which came out a few years ago, and the upcoming Operation Jericho, Freeing the D-Day French Resistance from Gestapo Jail, Amiens, 1944, which is due out in May from Osprey with a very mouthfully titled. But anyways, Rob, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Matt. And thank you very much for allowing me to join you this afternoon. Yeah, it's a mouthful of a subtitle, but I wanted to really hit home what this raid was all about. And that was the purpose of sort of rewriting the book for Osprey. It gave me a really good opportunity to focus hard on the the reality of the raid, and also to get some fabulous new pictures and maps. So the big challenge I had when I wrote my big book in 2014 was getting really good maps and diagrams and analysis in, uh, visual analysis, and we've managed to do, a, uh, Osprey had managed to do a fabulous job on the book 
which is coming out in May. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. We well, the pictures it. by Adam are unbelievable. I have no idea how he does it. I've always enjoyed his his artwork. And uh, he describes himself as a digital artist. And I think I've got not a clue, but it's just unbelievable. Yeah, you've sent a couple of the Typhoon ones over and they're glorious. They really are. They are amazing, aren't they? I mean, I sketched them all out. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take that a bit of glory at the start, but I showed you know where they all were and I had to do the understanding of the angles of the planes and what they were looking at and all the rest of it. But he, he's, he is really superb, actually, really remarkable. And just to say again, it is out in May, ladies and gentlemen, and it May, is yeah. available for pre-order on the History Hack bookshop. Get it there. Don't go to the um, the other shop where everybody <laughs> buys their books. So this is fascinating because the, the Amiens prison raid has become one of these legendary things. And we were talking before that so much other stuff has been written about it that, that doesn't really come together. And you know, as we were chatting before, you said when you set out to write this book, you thought it was going to be about mosquitoes, but it's very much a French resistance story. So let's let's start with them and we'll bring in we'll bring in the RAF later. So what is going on with the resistance sort of in and around Amiens, nor- northern France in sort of late 43, early 44 in the period that we your book starts? It's the right way. It's the right place to start. There is, so it's not really fair to call the resistance in France the French resistance, because actually there was no single organisation that was responsible for resisting the Nazis. I've always called it the resistance in France. And there are some really, really good books that will give you a fabulous overview of the uh, craziness that was France under the German occupation. But uh, let's keep cut it all short and say that in 1943, by, by October 1943, most of what had emerged as resistance organisations, and by that I mean anything from one to two or up to 20 or 30 people, uh, many of them had been crushed by the Germans. So everything that had sort of started in 1941 nascently and then a little bit more in 42, not very much. And then a lot of development of uh, French resistance networks in the uh, end of 1942, early 1943 had been smashed, mainly because of poor security. Now, the problem is, as the war grew and uh, developed and it became more and more obvious that the Germans weren't going to win in the long run, more and more French people bubbled up. Uh, to the service to offer their services in the cause of the Allies. And it came in lots and lots of different guises. And really, to cut a very long story short, if I was to say that perhaps only in 1943, we had maybe 4,000 people actively uh, working in uh, resistance networks in France, we probably got about the right number. And they were doing one of two things. One is they were picking up intelligence. A lot of intelligence wasn't worth picking up because people were picking up detail too, stuff that was too detailed to be of use. But strategic intelligence was being developed. And a number of other people under the auspices of organizations like F section of the Special Operations Executive were also doing a little bit of sabotage. But by 1943, there was an attempt by de Gaulle to bring all these organizations together under a very impressive uh, resistance leader called Jean Malin. He was actually caught and died in German captivity. Too long a story to go into here. Um, and, and Pierre Brasseleste, to his replacement, who was also captured. They were attempting to bring all these organizations into one organization to be part of what was called the secret army. So by the end of 1943, of course, we know that the plans for D-Day, Operation Fortitude, were coming on strong. And 
it was clear to everyone in London and Washington and Algiers that it made sense that there was a for there to be a secret army behind enemy lines at and after D-Day to support the Allied invasion, providing intelligence, small and large, and so on. But it's very interesting that as time went by in 1943, some of the quality of or the quality of some of the intelligence that was being gathered was quite dramatic, suddenly in, in a few places. And this was particularly the case in with intelligence that was sourced to ultimately around the arrival of the V1 uh, doodlebugs in northern uh, Europe and um, the state of the Atlantic war defences. We don't have time to go into this now. In my long book on the Amin Raid published in 2014, I detail the rationale of the resistance and what they were doing and the great divide in the resistance organisations between those supported by MI6 and those supported by F section um, of the um, SOE. There's a big difference. There's very, very little uh, of uh, commonality between the organisations, apart from all the cyber, cyber, the cyber clerks rather in F section were actually uh, run by MI6. The real point here, and I'm taking a long time to get to it, is that by the end of 1943 and early 1944, most of the strategic intelligence in Europe, northern France, was under the auspices and arriving. Uh, into MI6, or the Special Intelligence Service. Now, SIS, of course, was prescribed, well, knowledge of it was prescribed. It was secret. It was a state secret. Its existence was completely denied. And this caused a little bit of a problem further down the line when the military authorities in the UK were trying to explain what went on in Abion. But the important thing here is that uh, and it's, it, is a, it is a very important point. Most of the strategic intelligence coming out of France was going to MI6. And this is because MI6 was an intelligence organization. And in the, the two or three years before, had worked very assiduously with French sources to coordinate the gathering of material that was useful to the Allied war effort. And this came from a number of places. It came from Frenchmen on the ground who had created their own resistance organizations and wanted to find an outlet for that information. And it came from previously uh, extant organizations like the Dessian Bureau, the old French Army's second bureau responsible for intelligence, for uh, individuals of the Dessian Bureau who had stayed in the organization in secret after it had been disestablished in November 1942. They also needed an outlet for their intelligence, and they they sourced or they rooted that to MI6, in fact, through Geneva, via a man called uh, Colonel Groussard to an MI6 officer called Biffy Dunderdale. In northern France, it just so happened that much of the information either went to Geneva through Groussard and D- Dunderdale, or it went through a man called Gilbert Renault, codename Remé, who was one of the most remarkable spies of um, the era. Uh, in fact, Claude Dancy, who was operationally responsible for uh, MI6 services in northern France, did describe him as such. So Gilbert Renault first came across MI6 uh, in the Bruneval raid, we'll come to that in a moment, and got to know a lot of key, peoples, key people in uh, MI6 and the RAF, including Picard, in, in 1942. And this is a really important um, point to make. As time went by and as intelligence was being gathered by um, lots of people right across northern France, and it was being channeled up through people like uh, Gilbert Renault and a few others into MI6, a whole series of really important personal relationships were being established here. Trust was being built up and um, successful lines of communication relationships were being established that 
enabled MI6 and the Allies to trust the information that was coming out of certain sources. And this was quite unique because one of the real problems with intelligence before 1943 was, well, where does it come from? Can we trust it? Do we know who authored it? Are we being led, given a line by the Germans and so on? So having two or three really, really important key players, the most important one in northern France at the time being Gilbert Renault, was fundamentally important to the the intelligence efforts. A very long-winded answer to your question, but actually it is at the heart of the Amiens raid. Listeners need to understand that by December 1943 and early 1944, with the attacks being undertaken on the V1 sites, there were two sources of intelligence for the locations of the V1 sites in Northern Europe. One was aerial reconnaissance by by Spitfires in the main, and that was quite a remarkable effort in itself. We don't have time to discuss that today. Quite remarkable. The other was our secret intelligence, individuals on the ground, resistance on the ground, individuals identifying the telltale signs of the ramps and the, the launch sites and feeding it back through primarily Gilbert Renault's uh, organisation. He had six MI6 um, transmitters across northern France, one of which was in Paris. And that information could be back with the Allies through Bletchley Park within 24 hours. So that particular process was actually really quite mature. And by the time consideration came to an attack on Amiens jail, actually the Allies had really trusted relationships with the people who were giving them information, accurate information, on the ground about the V1 sites in particular, and also the Atlantic War. But I mentioned at the start that the, the Germans had really clamped down on the resistance organisations. So there's a lot of pressure on the end of 1943. A large number of uh, resistance cells have been broken up. Large numbers of um, individuals found themselves in prison and a large number were were executed after what you would call due process, but it was judicial murder. Individuals were taken through a court process and shot. And over the course of the war in France, about 30,000 resistants were shot for, for their activity. So it was a real problem. All of a sudden, the eyes and ears of MI6 on the ground, fundamental to the uh, to Operation Fortitude, really fundamental to our knowledge of what was going on uh, across the channel, uh, were ending up in prison. And this is the background to the Amiens raid. This is the the essential context that people need to understand about why the raid was launched in the first place. The individuals or some of the individuals who are really key not to sabotaging the German war effort, but to passing back information about what was going on uh, in uh, France and the Low Countries, were finding themselves taken out and put into various prisons across uh, northern France, Amiens being an important one, Arras being another, fewer in Paris, and so on. And um, and this was a, an issue of considerable concern to London. So you, you mentioned earlier that they were probably sending too detailed, too granular sort of information back. I guess, are we saying that over this period of time, they're starting to understand the level of information that, that London needs to be able to be effective. Yes. So the, the, the real challenge for if you're a resistant um, and outside of F section, most and we're not talking about F section here, m- most of the resistance or the intelligence um, sources were indigenously created. So there were individual Frenchmen and Belgians and, and so on who were saying to themselves, oh, I can provide, I've seen something that will be of use to the Allies. And they then find a way of connecting with uh, organisations like Gilbert Renault's C&D and so on, and the OCM. 
And the most successful ones are organisations that are of people who knew each other before the war. So they would start talking and, and so on. And in the early days, you know, you'd get all sorts of crazy information back. And, and, and there's a lot of this in the archives of details about how many soldiers in what location and what, what their routines were like and you know, useless stuff, stuff that didn't make a big difference in the, the big scheme of things. But by strategic intelligence, I mean the stuff that actually had a could have a real impact on the war. And the arrival of the V1 uh, weapons and the knowledge of Pinamunda, the V2, was, was sourced through this way with individuals finding uh, a way of getting information back to London. And then, then you had a different sort of relationship where London was saying, OK, I want you to go away and find out. So when, when the information about the V1s, for instance, first started arriving in London, the Allies couldn't work out what this information was, you know, what these strange sites were until eventually the penny dropped and then the details of those sites uh, and, and the way in which they were constructed, their giveaway signs, were then given to Gilbert Renault and others, who then gave them to their agents and said, go away and try and find out any strange construction in these particular areas and feed us back information. So it's, you know, the information that was required was strategic, it was detailed, but it was strategic in the first, for the first time. And then that leads to the body line in Noble operations that would continue right up through through D-Day. I was so disappointed when I found out that Noble's original name was Body Line, because that seems a much better operation. <laughs> <laughs> no, Noble, I mean, the, the problem is with the Second World War, there are so many crazy code names that don't mean anything. and They're, they're ridiculous. But Noble, yeah, that was, I'd prefer it be Noble rather than Noble, because <laughs> it was a Noble mission. And Noble, by the way, was the uh, was the code name for the uh, identification and attacking of V1 sites. Which we're going to say this a couple of times in this episode. That's an episode in itself, but we'll we shall. But so, what yeah. happens? What yeah. what does MI6 notice? How do they find out that the the sort of cell around Amiens has been has been rounded up? Well, the very simple way of describing this is to introduce a few people to you. I've mentioned Claude Dancy, who was responsible for operations in France, and his deputy was a man called Kenneth Cohen, and both remarkable men, actually. The other man who is uh, really important is a chap called André de Wavrin, who, to cut a long story short, is the head of the BCRA, which is de Gaulle's secret intelligence service. Now, the BCRA sat in Claude Dancy's pocket. It was organized and managed effectively by MI6. So we need, we need to understand that at the outset. The Free French Secret Intelligence Service was run by MI6. An agreement had uh, been reached between Duaveron and Claude Dancy that the BCRA would build up its networks across France. Uh, MI6 would fund them and give them transmitters and training in exchange for the intelligence that came back. So the intelligence that came back would go back to SIS and the Free French. They shared the intelligence and it worked brilliantly well. The SOE section that was funded and supported by MI6 was known as RF section. Essentially, it was the French, indigenous French French section of SOE, and it was almost exclusively uh, an MI6 operation, not a Claude Buckmaster operation. And for those who understand the operations of SOE, it's important to be clear about that distinction. Anyway, André de Wavrin was a very good friend of Gilbert Renault, who we've already met, codenamed Remy, because in the early days of the war, there are only a handful of people who are involved in intelligence in France. 
you know, you could stick them all in a room and have plenty of space to spare. There weren't many people, Gilbert Renault being one of them, and he was the man who provided all the intelligence and the on-ground support, etc., for the Bruneval raid, Operation Biting in 1942, which was tremendously successful. And it was really important for Claude Dancy to recognise in Gilbert Renault a man whom he could trust. And from biting onwards, Claude Dancy, you know, the most important person in MI6 with regard to Operations France, absolutely trusted Gilbert Renault, his men and his information. And um, the way that Claude, uh, that Gilbert Renault operated was just by using his own pre-war networks and trusted connections in France to build up his intelligence network. And this consisted of large numbers of small groups of people, some individuals, some two or three groups. One of those groups was a group of ex-army officers in and around Amiens called the Sozies. They were called the Sozies, S-O-S-I-E-S. And they were run by two brothers, one of whom was a man called Dominic Panchardia. And Dominic Panchardia and his brother's entire depositions from the war, they were authorised and um, and given the chop in 1946 and 47, I think as early as that, are in the archives in France. And they're quite remarkable. But, you know, Dominic Panchardia had a number of his own agents or individuals who gave him information and gave other people information. It's really important to understand that in the the resistance circles, you might have individuals who would give information to you and to other resistance organizations as well. So there's, it was a, a very, very mixed bag. There's no such uh, concept of one organization that was hermetically sealed and only working to itself. There was a lot of people talking to each other. And anyway, Andre de Weveren, uh, was connected to Gilbert Renault. Gilbert Renault was connected to Dominic Panchardia, who had a number of sources of intelligence in and around the Amiens area. One of them, a very good friend of his, whose father had been deported actually in 1941-42, was a young man called Jean Buren. And Jean Buren had been arrested and taken into Amiens prison. And a number of other um, of the resistance networks in and around Amiens found themselves in prison, including an MI9 operative called uh, Dr. Robert Beaumont. And this is where this, these connections, these people connections are really important because Dominic Panchardia actually met, came to London in, in 1943, late 1943, and met Picard. And he met Picard because Gilbert Renault and Picard were great mates from the Bruneval raid. They met in pubs in London. And one of their other mates was a chap called Philippe Laval. Philippe Laval was a Frenchman who had escaped from France when the Germans arrived. He trained for the RAF. He didn't join the Free French um, Forces. He joined the Royal Air Force and he became an RAF navigator. He was actually on the raid in one of the 21 squadron uh, mozzies as a navigator. And these men, when they could, they met together. So Ponchardia met Picard once, but Claude Gilbert Renault, uh, André de Weveren and Picard were regular, were regulars in uh, you know, you can see this happening in a pub. They would have meals together. They would drink together regularly and they would talk and chew the fat. On one occasion, in it's got to be probably October 1943, a message came back to Gilbert Renault, probably from Dominic Panchardi, but we do know that the messages came back, not just from one source, from a number of sources, to Gilbert Renault, that really important people in the resistance organisation were being arrested and taken to Arras and Amiens. Quite a number were in Amiens. And... You can just imagine this happening in, in the pub in London. Philippe Lavelle and Gilbert Renault and Charles Picard are sitting there 
having a conversation about what could possibly be done to free the prisoners. Now, this had been considered before. The, the RAF had considered earlier in the year, the, uh, earlier in the war, the idea of bombing prisons and allowing uh, resistance to escape. It had been dismissed because you've got to think about what's going to happen to them next. What about reprisals? What about the danger of bombing the prison rather than the walls? But by October 1943, of course, we know that the <clears throat> this organisation that Basil Embry was in charge of uh, in the Second Tactical Air Force, two group, uh, had been established precisely to undertake low-level precise operations against targets in Europe. Now, from late 1943, the V1 menace had emerged, and increasingly, the Embry's eight squadrons were being used to identify and attack those sites. And it came as a, as a fabulous opportunity for Embry because Embry's basic problem was he didn't have enough targets. Most of the targets identified for the war against the Germans were heavy bomber targets. Only about 10% of targets were useful for pinpoint precision attack. So all of a sudden, in this conversation, at a time when Embry's eight uh, wings were, eight squadrons rather, uh, were being used to attack the V1 sites, a question arose. Do we think that mozzies could be used to attack Amiens prison to destroy the walls, to allow resistance prisoners in the prison the opportunity of escaping? And this is not... Uh, all of the historical evidence leads to a conversation taking place. I'm just supposing that it took place in the pub because I know they enjoyed having a drink together. Let's just say it was in Duke Street or it could have been anywhere else. These men had the conversation and an idea was formed. And the way it then developed was... Um, Kenneth Cohen, who is very friendly with these, and I should have added that Kenneth Cohen would have been in this uh, drinking group as well, or Picard, would have then gone to Claude Dancy and said, Claude Dancy, what about having uh, uh, sending the mosquitoes against uh, Amiens prison? And the way this uh, would actually have occurred is that Amiens prison would needed to have been placed on the target list. How do you get that on the target list? Well, you have to create a strong argument for allied resources being allocated to this job and the the benefit being demonstrated in the in the targeting. Otherwise, it wouldn't have arrived on the target list. It would have just been dismissed. And in this process, a little bit of exaggeration has clearly taken place because the message that the Air Ministry eventually received, and then uh, Basil Embry received it as a tasking order or a request, actually, was that there are about 120 really important resistance prisoners in Amiens jail soon to be executed it's really important that the RAF set up a precision rate to destroy the walls. Now, that's that's not untrue, uh, but it, the facts have been slightly twisted. There were probably about 180 resistance prisoners in Amiens prison, none of whom were due, well, a few were due to be executed very soon. But you can understand the exaggeration that took place. Here was, in order to get it on the target list, you needed to put a little bit of spin on it. And that's exactly what happened. We had the... There was a lot of discussion, we know. We know this from um, a number of sources. A lot of discussion in MI6 about whether an attack like this was worth it and whether indeed the Air Ministry should even be asked. So I think uh, the, the, what happened, I'm convinced this is what happened, Claude Dancy, certainly prompted by Kenneth Cohen, said, OK, let's ask the Air Ministry whether it's possible to launch a raid without having too many casualties and for the benefit of allowing these resistance to escape. That's exactly what happened, because we now have we have the documentary uh, evidence of that. We have the paper trail, which uh, is the message from the air ministry to Basil Embry saying, what's the chance of this happening? Basil Embry, of course, desperate for low level um, precision targets, talks to Picard, 
who, of course, uh, was one of the originators of the idea of the first place and says, yep, we can give it a crack. And that's where the raid came from. There's, there's no other uh, rational explanation or historical explanation for the raid. This wasn't because, as some would have it, that there were too many important prisoners in the prison and they needed to be killed by the RF before they were tortured to release information to the Germans. That's actually an original piece of German propaganda from the time, from 1944, that has actually continued to swirl around in, in circle historical circles today. It's complete nonsense. Um, nor is it true that there was a particular uh, prisoner, MI6 prisoner in Amien jail, who had the secrets of Operation Fortitude, who needed to be executed, and therefore uh, 140 wing were deputed to go out there and, and kill him. It's complete nonsense, absolute nonsense. And yet those sort of conspiracy theories still whirl around. So we have this situation where Basil Embry, quite a remarkable man, actually, um, and two, decides to uh, come up with a plan to attack the prison. Really, really unique. Well, it's unique to attack the prison, although there have been, as we know, a number of earlier low-level precision attacks by other aircraft, but primarily by Mozzies as early as 1942 against strategic targets in Europe for this purpose, the purpose of, of uh, releasing prisoners. Uh, from Gestapo capture. Let's talk about Basil for a moment, because Basil Embry is one of those great unsung heroes of, of the RAF. He, he, he gets in the shadows of others, especially, especially post-Normandy. But his career is beyond remarkable. Like I said, need an episode completely on him. But tell us a little bit about Embry, because he's, he was there. He did it. He even wanted to fly this raid, which we'll get to in a minute as well. He did want to fly the raid, yeah. Well, I mean, the first point to say is that actually Operation Fortitude, and I have been through the Operation Fortitude files in the National Archives. They're quite remarkable, actually, very detailed. Uh, and there's no mention of Amion in it. Uh, but of course, there were a very small handful of people who knew what was going to happen in outline terms. And of course, Basil Embry was one of them because two groups had been established with the Second Tactical Air Force to provide battlefield um, support for D-Day and thereafter. So he knew what was coming up. He didn't know much about it. He wasn't privy to the date or the precise details. There's only a very small handful of people that we know who had that information. And the idea that there might have been an agent in Europe who had this information is just not just fanciful. It's stupid. So let's not go there. But Basil Embry, as I said earlier, was desperate to work out ways in which he could maximise the performance of his group. By that, I mean choosing out targets of high value and hitting them and destroying them every time. And the, the V1, the attacks, the no-ball attacks on the V1s, really were quite spectacular. Embry himself suggested that they were more important to the war effort than the Battle of Britain. His group flew about 4,500, I forget the exact details, but about 4,500 sorties, destroyed most of the sites that had been identified, the loss of about 40 aircraft and, and crews, but made a dramatic impact on the defence and security of the United Kingdom in the months leading up to D-Day and indeed thereafter. And, you know, this was his rationale. And it's quite sad that we've lost sight of Basil Embry, actually. He was a remarkable man. And of course, what many of your listeners may not know is that, of course, in 1940, he was shot down himself over northern France during the um, invasion of northern France and the Low Countries by uh, the Germans in what was known as the Blitzkrieg. And uh, he managed to evade and make his way home. So he had a very clear view about 
some of the work that was being done by the resistance groups, particularly MI9. Of course, MI9, we don't have time to go into it here, but MI9 was quite a well-established organization, again, doing a very different job to the intelligence creators and individuals finding intelligence in, in, in Northern Europe. But with large numbers of Allied bombers going to into Germany, the heart of Germany uh, every day, it was important that, and, and with quite a number, large number of aircrew bailing out, you know, a, a systematic way of recovering those aircrew needed to be established. And that's the story of MI9. And I've mentioned uh, Dr. Robert, uh, Robert Beaumont, who was uh, actually killed in the raid. He was an, uh, an MI9 anchor in and around Amiens, and uh, his story is relatively well known. Embry knew how important the prison was for resistance purposes and for escaping and evading. And that would have added grist to the mill and his the decision that he uh, had to make. The, the decision to attack Amion was his decision. And that would have been an important factor in considera- considerations that he had to come to. What sort of effect for the work that Attenbury was doing did the Mosquito have on it? Because it's, it's a game-changing aircraft. Well, he couldn't. He, it was fundamental. No, it was absolutely fundamental. It was only the Mosquito that was able to provide the the speed and the precision of attack. And it's not just the ability to fly low level and to be precise in bombing. It's the ability to get there very quickly and to escape as well, because this is one of the real challenges. When the Mosquito was you know, first flown uh, operationally at the end of 1942, it had a top speed of about 400 miles an hour flat out, which is 20, 30 miles faster than the latest mark of Spitfire at the time. So it was quite remarkable. But its steadiness and its stability as a bombing platform was absolutely fundamental because you could fly very, very fast and very low. And, and good pilots very quickly learned how to put their bombs right on target. And this is the this is the thing. You couldn't use those aircraft to guarantee that you could put a bomb through the Amiens wall and not hit anything else. And that's why it's important. And the mosquitoes gave the crews confidence as well that they could get there quickly, safely and, and get away. Flak was always a problem, though. By 1943, late 1943, of course, we had the Fokker Wolves who were um, real aircraft killers and they were roaming at will in this part of the world. And they were a real threat, which is, of course, why the, the four Typhoon squadrons had been set up to fly out on the raid. But there's no doubt that Embry couldn't have done this with the same sort of certainty if he didn't have mosquitoes. So let- In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. We've mentioned him. Let's get on to him. Charles Pic Picard. For those of you who like your movies will know him as the star of Target for Tonight, which interestingly is on the, the new BFI Blu-ray of Powell and Pressburger. One of our aircraft is missing. They've just done a beautiful yes. restoration of it. So I've had a little watch of that. It's, it's great. But his career is pretty remarkable as well, besides having having pints with resistance members in France, which is very Army of Shadows, if, if we're going to bring in movie references. But what was it about Pickford? Because his career, again, like Embry, did just about everything, didn't he? He was, he was a remarkable man. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. He did just about everything. Let's just start by saying that when uh, Picard died, he died age 20. Just think about that, 28 years old. Isn't that extraordinary? He crammed a huge amount into his life. He actually joined the the RAF as uh, in 1937 on a short service commission. You know, hadn't been spectacularly successful at school academically. Tried to do some stuff in Africa, colonial Africa. Hadn't really worked out. Joined the Air Force. Could see the war clouds coming, and um, the RAF was an absolute home for him. He's a real character. Uh, he was very well known. And uh, you could see in that fabulous film, um, Target for Tonight, he's also a natural actor and, and he loved hamming it up and he liked people. It's worth saying, rushing forward a little bit, he wasn't particularly experienced at low level operations. And one of the reasons why Embry wanted to go himself was not because Embry wanted to hog the limelight or, you know, or, or lead from the front. There's a little bit of that as well. But he was worried about Picard because Picard didn't have the experience of low level of he didn't have the hours that some of his other commanders had and this was a real problem dear old picard had spent a lot of time um, flying lysanders into france which is of course where he met gilbert renault and he'd done a bit of everything and whilst it was very good he understood the french connection very well he knew the people uh, he was very important in the whole cycle of deciding about Ambien prison and persuading MI6 and the Air Ministry to, to launch the attack. And I think a, a lot of historians have missed that fact. His personal advocacy with Gilbert uh, Renault and, and Philip, Philippe Lavelle and, and, and so on was, was really, really important. But, you know, it, it was a tragedy. He was lost. But he was probably one of the least experienced commanders on the operation. It's, that itself just points to the fact that actually... We need to remind ourselves that the uh, two group had only been established in October 1943. So this was only four months, five months old, this organization. Uh, they didn't really have do, do much training. They went straight into operations. Embry had this idea of 
uh, training by flying or training through flying. His crews gained the training that they required by flying operational sorties over northern France. Embry's quite funny about this in his biography. Um, funny is perhaps the wrong word, but you know he's quite acute about it. He didn't want to waste flying hours on bombing runs and practice in the UK. You know he had an enemy close by where uh, if he just sent them into, into France, they would get all the experience they needed. But there was a real challenge here. I'm just going to go back to the point I made earlier about not having enough targets. And it was a perennial problem for poor old um, Embry. There weren't enough targets. And if there weren't targets, and the aircraft would only fly two or three times a week. And he wanted them in the air every day of the week. Uh, but if there wasn't a target, mm-hmm. why, why fly? And this is the problem, to have strategic effect, to make a real impact on the battlefield. Before D-Day, you know, we know the argument, we know why two group was established, we know why two TAF was established, it was for post-D-Day stuff, but you're preparing for D-Day, you're clearing the battlefield, you're dominating the airspace, you're training your crews, you're doing all this important stuff, but if the targets don't exist, there's nothing you can do. You're flying around consuming fuel for no particular purpose. But you know, going back to dear old um, Picard, quite a remarkable man, and um, and a real character, uh, he had that whole story about him by the time he went on this raid, age 28. We've mentioned biting once or twice. He flew one of the aircraft and biting. He very funnily had to explain to the king why there was a, a mark of his bottom on the bar roof when the king came around <laughs> yes. to celebrate. He, again, is one of those characters who you, you were talking about earlier about some of the 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 fluff that's gone around with this he, he's he's been tired with a bit of that fluff as well that he may may have over egged the pudding to to guess it and there's I've I've read some some articles and some takes on this that he was a bit rogue but that's not the case at all is he yeah he, he definitely wasn't rogue I mean if you, you think about any argument that you, uh, you make in the armed forces or or where it could be in business for a proposition the the danger is spinning it too hard. But I completely get the argument that Picard made, and Picard made it with Gilbert Renault to Kenneth Cohen to attack the prison. And I think that the argument, that the spin that was then built up in the Air Ministry message came later, because MI6 clearly didn't want to put a little bit of a, a, a very small request, and they needed to have some real substance to it. You can see how Claude Dancy sitting there and saying, "Well, we're not going to attack the ra- we're not going to attack the prison for five important prisons. We're going to say there are, we know there are at least 120. So we're going to say there are 120 prisoners, and they're going to be shot soon. You know that bit of spin I entirely get. So Picard wasn't rogue at all. He was a big character, and he took risks. There's no doubt about that as well. Although when we come to it, him being shot down wasn't really his fault. He took." evasive action he knew what he was doing it was just one of those tragedies of war that he was spotted and jumped on by a fog of wolf and there was no one certainly no typhoons available at the time to to provide some um, counter air which is a real problem Picard was one of the heroes of the story he was one of the heroes of the RF and I'll just make this point actually these sorts of raids so biting the Amiens raid many others happened uh, they were planned and they were executed through the advocacy of strong men. And that's it. There's no conspiracy here. It's just the characters of the men who were responsible for determining what should happen and how it should happen. They made the decisions. They had big personalities. They had, yeah, they had manageable egos, but they determined that they should do something and they went and did it, even though at the same time they were putting their lives on the line. And that's the important thing about Picard. He 
He was a fighter. He was out there in the front and he died fighting. So let's get to it. We've answered one of the questions, which is, this is just another ramrod on the list. There's no special training for it. It's 140 wing is they're woken up as they are. Pick walks in and the briefing starts and it's as straightforward as you would think there would have been, you know, weeks of training against made up targets, but this is just another ramrod. It's another ramrod. It's another day. And the exciting thing about another day is that there's actually a worthwhile task to undertake. So they go in there, there's standard ramrod security on the uh, in the officer's mess. This started the previous year. The important thing about attacking the V1s is that if aircrew were shot down, they needed to know that they could say nothing to their captors about the targets they were chasing because they didn't want the Germans to know that we had rumbled the V1 operation. This is really fundamentally important. And also V2. So some historians have said, well, why was there security on the gate? It's really, really simple. Operational security now when you're, you're attacking such strategically important and sensitive targets needed to be top notch. And, and, and the crews were warned of this just by having the RAF policeman on the door. It was a warning to a reminder to them that um, they needed to keep their mouths shut if they were shot down. And they did when they were shot down. The, the, the memoirs of many of those, a number of those on the Amiens raid who ended up being just shut their mouths. They didn't even say they're on the Amiens raid. They wanted to stay as far away from this as possible. For very good reasons. They went in, they were shown a very detailed model of scale model of Amiens prison, which had been beautifully built up from some, a large number of air photographs. These are all in the National Archives. You can see them all now. Amazing number of photographs taken from as early as pre- the previous November, which uh, you know is, a, is, is pretty good at being able to time, to identify the timing of the first request to attack Amiens prison, October, probably October, 1943. Beautiful model. The men hadn't seen anything like it, although the model makers tried to make models of the more sophisticated targets if they had the information. And they were given their instructions and um, then given a couple of hours to prepare their aircraft, get into the aircraft and take off. Very, very simple instructions. The aircraft were 140 wing was based in Hunson and Hertfordshire, uh, which is now closed down, but just north of London. They were due to they were to make their way to a rendezvous point above Henley, not very far from where I'm sitting now, and then to make their way down to Littlehampton. And the aircraft would then make their way across the channel to Tocqueville and then head to the north of Amiens, to the area of Albert, and then do a, a U-turn and come back on Amiens, effectively from the northeast. And the escorting fighters, there were four. Um, squadrons of typhoons identified for the raid to support the raid, two squadrons to support the ingress and two squadrons to support the return. The two squadrons going out were would marshal above the with the mosquitoes above the south coast of England at Littlehampton and they would escort them out and on the way back, they would swap over, uh, over Amion, they'd swap over with aircraft number three, number 198 squadrons from RAF Manston, uh, who would then escort the aircraft back. And uh, and that all went pretty well, actually. It's worth saying that at the start of the raid, the weather in uh, England was absolutely appalling, driving snow at Hunston, driving snow at Manston and Littlehampton. It was nasty. In fact, sadly, as a consequence of that snow, three squadrons decided, typhoons decided that they wouldn't fly 
And of course, it's the squadron commander's prerogative. The safety of the aircraft for them was was the most important. And they didn't think it was um, they were capable of flying in that weather. Anyway, the three nominated squadrons, interestingly enough, a, an RAF, number 21 squadron, an Australian squadron, number 464, and the New Zealand squadron, 487, those three squadrons and number 40 wing, took off from Hunston, made their way across the English Channel and thundered down the road from Albert towards Amiens Prison, which they reached just after noon on the 28th, escorted probably about 1,500, between 1,000 and 1,500 feet above them by the um, typhoons whose responsibility was to provide some some air cover, uh, particularly against the Fokker Wolves, who were well known to be nearby. Because they're cutting just short of Abbeville, which is a very, very famous <laughs> Luftwaffe base by that point. Yeah, and, and, well, this is a remarkable part of the world, you know, very, very well known to generations of British soldiers. And, uh, and it's, it's not very far from home. Really, which close. is which is why the typhoons don't have drop tanks, which is always something that comes up when people talk about because this this is their hunting ground by this point of the world. Yeah, they were just going to do a stooge across the channel and back again, and it wasn't going to take very long. Uh, but of course, just to remind everyone, if you need reminding, this was a low level precision precision raid. So the during the instruction during the briefing in the morning, Picard said to his boys, "You need to be really low. You need to be as low as you can get." And Mac Mac Spark said he was at one stage, at 10 feet above the ground. And um, the crew of Over Orange, the FPU photographic um, plane, a Mozzie Mark IV, were absolutely shocked to see the snow swirls behind their engines. They were that low. And uh, the aircraft came in in their attack runs against the prison at about 20 feet. They then had to release the bombs. They're all on 11-second fuses. And then gain height immediately. Otherwise, they would have hit the walls. And it was quite extraordinary. The precision without any specific training against a mock target. This is the extraordinary thing here. You know, they're fighting a war. They didn't have time to, to do any of this rehearsal nonsense. There was a mission on for that day. They had to you know, put their kit on, get on the aircraft, bomb up, fuel up, get out there, do the job, get back. They didn't think about it. They just did it. And that actually is uh, the reason for one of the, the problems with the raid, in my view, is that, you know, they went out, 40 bombs were dropped, 20 armor-piercing, 20 high explosive against the prison. And, you know, I've spoken to him, I spoke to Merv Darrell many years ago, one of the pilots in New Zealand. He said, Rob, you know, we, we had no guarantee that one, two or even three bombs would hit the target. We always took a full bomb load and we always used a full bomb load if we could because we needed resilience in our bomb in the bomb load, in the, in the attack. You know, we needed enough air, enough bombs available to, you know, to be able to do it again if we'd missed the first time. And that's the, the really simple answer to the question, why were so many bombs dropped on the prison if the aim was uh, only to take out the walls, not the prison? One of the real issues, actually, as it transpired, because they hadn't done any practice uh, of uh, low-level bombing on 11-second fuses on hard ground, was that most of the bombs skidded. Because it, it's it's February, and it's a, yeah to do James Holland here, yeah. it was a terrible winter. And yeah... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It was an awful day. Actually, it was a typical grey English day, but uh, and not, it wasn't an English day. But Northern France it was a typical French uh, winter's day. But yeah, the ground was incredibly hard, and, and no one had thought about this. And when the bombs were flung, so the mosquitoes released the bombs as they went into the motion of flying up and gaining uh, gaining height and acceleration. The bombs were then thrown forward, and they skidded towards the target. And some of them didn't skid they actually bounced up 
And uh, one of the reasons why there was an 11 second fuse was the danger of the bomb going off, of course, and catching the aircraft that released it. That was the importance of the 11 second fuses. But actually most of the bomb strikes, you can see this in the book, and I've done a lot of detailed analysis about where, where every single bomb landed. It's taken me years to work that out. But you'll see that actually quite a few of them uh, bounced up and hit the walls or bounced over the wall into the prison itself quite tragically and, and, and quite a number of prisoners were killed as a consequence. What, but what, um, what was the weight of the bombs? Were they dropping 500s? They were 500 pounders, yeah. yeah. Uh, which, is, which is the right thing to do. If you look at the, all the photographs of the attack, where the walls were taken down, they were taken down cleanly by a 500 pound bomb. I think 250 pound would have been too small. Clearly, you know, Mozzie could take four um, 500 pounders. They had a um, bomb load of 2,000 pounds. And you know anything larger would, would would have not suited the purpose. This needed some precision and accuracy and the right amount of ammunition. I think we we threw too many bombs at it. But actually, going back to my point, we threw too many bombs at it because most of the bombs were accurate. Most of the bombs landed where they were intended to drop, uh, rather than sort of five miles distance, which was sadly the uh, the reality in many other bombing attacks. So let's switch to the prison. What is happening inside when the attack goes in? Well, it's really important to say that actually a message was got back to Dominic Punchardi. Remember that the CND Rezo, so Gilbert Renault's resistance network had six uh, radios, and they got a message back saying that there was going to be an attempt on the prison, I think it was on the 27th, and Punchardi had tried very, very hard to get a number of his mates together with some vehicles to put themselves outside the prison in order to be able to, to collect the prisoners as they escaped. Now, there's a real challenge here, of course, because the, the nature of the networks were that they were fractured. There were very few people uh, there. They didn't have many resources. Actually, when the, um, the message came through that it was actually on the 28th, he managed to get a couple of vehicles and a couple of guys to wait alongside the main road and where the prison was and spent when the bombs uh, came down and the walls were blown in and the prisoners began to escape, he managed to um, get a number of guys into trucks and take them away. He was there for about half an hour. He left at about half past 12. The Germans, actually, there were only six Germans in the prison at the time. The Germans didn't allow people out for exercise or anything. Once you're in a cell, you're in a cell. That's it. You know, you were pretty safe. You didn't need many people to, to guard you. And most of the Germans were killed because one of the bombs uh, hit directly on the uh, the German officers. And the Germans in Amiens itself, you know, not a huge number. They didn't have a sort of a quick reaction force to go away, to, to, to immediately respond to things like this. This was a real surprise to the Germans. The first Germans, by the earliest account, didn't actually get to the ruins till about two o'clock. And some of the other accounts say the Germans didn't get there till about 2.30. And when they got there, they were interested only in, in identifying the prisoners who uh, had been killed and those whom they had captured. The, the primary response by the Germans was to try and recover prisoners who had escaped. There weren't any dramatic reprisals. In fact, there were no reprisals. But the German effort was to recover escapees. But they were quite long time in coming. In fact, Panchardi would have been quite safe in staying there for another 30 or 40 minutes to help. But you know, he didn't have the resources to do so. So it meant that many of the uh, individuals who ran out of the prison, you know, ran across the field. Lalamant, who made, who recorded his experiences, who was a Belgian pilot in 1990, recorded seeing large crowds of prisoners running across the um, the, the barren white scape of, uh, of the surrounding area. 
after the raid. And um, many of them got away. Many of them managed to get into local houses and, and find shelter. There are about just over 700. I mean, the, the, the real problem here is statistics that, you know, wherever you turn, there are um, different figures that you can use for the number of prisoners in the prison. The records at the time were qu- are quite uneven. But there were at least 700 prisoners in the prison, about 180 resistance prisoners. And after those who had been escaped and killed in the prison, about 95 were killed, 95 prisoners in total were killed. We think that probably about 80 or 85 resistance members managed to get away and stay away. So when those figures eventually got back to Embry, he and MI6, of course, were quite pleased that that the numbers were as significant as they were. Because if you had made the argument originally that 120 prisoners were about to be executed, and you then uh, were able to recognise that at least 85 of them had escaped and got away, that's a jolly good number. That's a real success. And both MI6 and the RAF, the Air Ministry in Embry, regarded this to be a dramatic success. And, and it was. It was a dramatic success, despite the, the, the casualties, the collateral damage, um, as we'd call it now, in the prison with bombs going off in places where they were not intended to be. So they've hit the target. Picard has stayed over the target to keep an eye on it. They then make a run for the north. And this is when the Luftwaffe decide to show up because everyone's making making for the channel. There, there was a, a, a very tragic confluence of events at about three or four minutes past midday. So the second uh, set of the second set of attacks. So the, the attacks took place in four waves. The first two waves coming in from the east, very successful. And the second, I've got that slightly wrong. The first and the third waves coming in from the east, and the second and the fourth waves coming in from the north. And when both of the waves had been completed at about five minutes past 12, a lone Fokker-Wolf turns up probably at about 1,500 feet, probably at about the level of the cloud layer, and sees escaping mosquitoes flying off to the northwest, and then probably does a circle, comes down and spots Picard's aircraft, which had done a circle across the prison just to confirm that the uh, the target, you know, the attack had been successful. And so you, ha- you have this focker wolf coming in with its uh, 20 millimeter cannons. It takes it as Picard flies off to the northeast. It fires at Picard and misses. But Picard quite clearly recognizes he's under attack. I think it's certain that he does. He then takes evasive action by flying north. And the Fokker Wolf is on his tail and shoots him down near St. Gratian, which is about seven miles north of, of Amiens, at about seven minutes past. So it all happens very, very quickly. And the, the, the tragedy here is that one of the squadrons of typhoons, which had been deputized to come out and provide the secure escort for the route home, number three squadron from Manston, had not been able to get airborne. Uh, to undertake the mission because the snow conditions were so bad over Manston. And I'm pretty confident that had there been uh, those typhoons in the air uh, above the prison at the time, Picard would have been able to get away. It's just one of those things. The, the weather across southern England was atrocious. It was quite clear and even sunny in parts over northern France. But it meant that three squadron weren't able to get airborne and provide the support that, that possibly would have saved Picard and enabled uh, all the aircraft to get home. Uh, scot-free and as it was four aircraft didn't make it 
Flight Sergeant Brown and one of the typhoons going back to Manston was lost over the channel. What are the, the mozzies returning under Squadron Leader McRitchie and Flight Lieutenant Sampson, who was killed, was shot down by anti-aircraft fire. And we've just mentioned Picard. We need to mention his navigator, Flight Lieutenant Broadley, was killed in action. And another typhoon was shot down by flying off with uh, piloted by flying officer Renault. He, of course, also kept his mouth shut. And the Germans were none the wiser about about the raid and, and the purposes of it. So in the great scheme of things, this has been quite a success. Minimal losses. Yes, Picard has been killed. The decent number of escapees, the raid is, you know, it's ticked every box it possibly could, especially with the weather. It could have gone horribly wrong. Yeah. But then nothing really happens. You would think this would be straight into the newsreels, but it's eight months before any of the news starts coming out. And the very simple reason for that is the origin of the targeting was top secret. There were very little uh, news reports actually about the noble raids anyway. If you look at the newspaper reports and, and so on at the time, they talk about targets, just general targets. In fact, it was very, very important the Germans didn't know that we were onto the V1 dispersals. And it's the same case for raids against the, the radiant Amiens. Because the source of the intelligence were French resistance members and it had, been, it had come directly from SIS, of course, which I said at the beginning, was completely secret. No one knew about it. It wasn't supposed to be publicised in any way, shape or form. There was no publicity about this at all. And that's the that's a very simple reason for the, the lack of publicity. And of course, at the same time, the RAF wouldn't have wanted to make it known that Picard, who was a big, big figure in the RAF and in the public understanding and appreciation of what the RAF was doing, had been killed until well after D-Day and the uh, the beaches and the invasion of France had been as well established. And that was really, really important because, of course, Noble went on all the way into early 1945 with the continuing attacks on um, on V1 and V2 sites across northern Europe until Holland had been cleared effectively. So what happens once the Canadians get through Amiens? Is there a sort of a site visit to have a look? Yes, this is all rather bizarre because the Royal Air Force send out a wing commander to Amiens who uh, is responsible for drawing up the sort of post-operation report. And he's very badly briefed, actually. He doesn't know what's going on. He didn't know the background to the to the request. Embry hadn't told him because Embry wouldn't tell him about SAS because it wasn't his role. And, uh, and he, he went out there completely blind, came back, wrote a ridiculous report that says, well, I don't know why the raid took place. Um, no one in Amiens knows why it took place. They didn't tell me. And uh, and I'm none the wiser. Well, of course, he was none the wiser because this was secret stuff that he wasn't privy to. Although in the bureaucracy of the time, he had to complete his report. So he completed a report that says, well, clearly it took place. I've no idea why. He, he wa- actually wasn't smart enough to say, ah, I'm in the Air Force. The target was given. It was authorised by someone in government, but they're not telling me who it is. Therefore, right, OK. He didn't actually say that. And I don't, it just, he may not have been um, sufficiently worldly wise to understand that this was something that he would never be told. He had to, he had to accept it uh, as a secret mission for which there was secret intelligence that he wasn't privy to. Um, but that particular report has misled many people who said, oh, so there's, a, there's another secret. The establishment, the British establishment, were trying to hide something else. 
uh, and Optel ERF, which is just, as I've explained, a complete load of nonsense. But that has led to a number of conspiracy theories emerging uh, from the... But it's very interesting, all the people who were closely involved in the raid, uh, Pickard clearly has now gone, but Kenneth Cohen, and I've interviewed his son, and Kevin Cohen, and Gilbert Renault and De Weverin and so on, all, and Philippe, Philippe Laval... Uh, were, you know, all, all knew the origins of the raid and indeed Basil Embry. And in 1946, a film was made in France called Operation Jericho. This is where the whole Operation Jericho thing came from. It uh, had no operational name at the time, but Operation Jericho was, was pretty inspired. And Dominic Panchardia and, and a few others, including Gilbert Renault. Gilbert Renault actually before the war was an aspiring filmmaker. So that's, <laughs> that's where the film came from. And... Um, and, and everyone who was involved in the secret intelligence side in Britain supported the film, came out, went out to its launch at the British Embassy in 1946. You know, it was well known to them. They didn't have to, they didn't have to hide anything. They knew where, the, where it came from. It came from a conversation probably in a pub and, and, and the raid was, was undertaken as a consequence. And then Dominic Pichardi and his brother wrote the depositions for the French government to uh, create a, an accurate record of resistance activity during the war and and so on and and the rest as they say was history you know it was a fantastic raid it, it came about as a consequence of some conversations that a few friends had about the opportunity to uh, release their friends from prison and from certain execution by the germans and um and that's it it's not much more complicated than that the raid took place at a time when a number of things enabled it to happen the mosquito precision attacks embry in charge is fundamental Picard knowing Gilbert Renault, Gilbert Renault knowing Dominic Panchardia, and Dominic Panchardia having a number of friends who were uh, incarcerated in Amiens. That's the story of the Amiens raid. That's why it happened. That's actually why it makes it so exciting. It's so intensely human. And, uh, and it's, it's helpful for us now, when we look at the Amiens raid, to recognize it as a human, as a human thing. This is something that happened in wars and as a focus for decisions that that people in, in the heat of not battle but in the heat of live operations against the germans and being able to understand why these things take place is, is really important because so many people um, misunderstand decision making in war and there is a, a small group of people who perhaps rather ignorantly think that you know in the second world war in britain or in london there was a big bunker with lots of really smart people in there saying okay we're going to do this and we call it the establishment the establishment saying we're going to pull the string and pull that string and do this and do that it's not like that at all war is incredibly chaotic and it's about small groups of individuals uh, many of them with agency i making decisions and executing them themselves vigorously and rigorously who executed these decisions and these plans and that's the excitement for me of the Amion raid. And as you say, Matt, it came good. It was a very successful raid. The men were highly trained. They were committed to doing what they could to carry it off, to release those prisoners. And Dominic Pachardia, you know, to his dying day, he became ambassador for the French ambassador of Bolivia. To his dying day, he said, you know, you gave us hope. That's the outcome of the raid. Robert, that has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you for that. What's the name of the book? When's it out? You get to say the mouthful title. Oh, man. for goodness sake. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, um, I, I've got to remind myself. I, I think, what did we call it? We've called it Operation Jer- Jer- Jericho. We've actually 
decided to call it Operation Jekyll. My original idea was uh, the original book, the long book, the one that took me years of research uh, in Gilby Reno um, archives, in fact, in Con and Fract. And the what is the subtitle? What are we going to call the subtitle? I'm looking at it now and I can't remember. Okay, I'll do it. Freeing the D-Day French resistance from Gestapo jail, Amiens, 1944. There you go. That says it all. But glad, I'm glad you remembered what it was called. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just quickly scrolling through my notes. For those of you who want to get it, and let's face it, don't we all? It's out in May from Osprey. It is on the History Hack bookshop right now. You can, you can grab a copy. But also on the History Hack bookshop, we shall we have to mention it because we've we've not had you on to talk about it yet. Is a War of Empires, which I have not seen anyone say a bad thing about it yet, which well, must be quite quite nice. Well, I'm I'm um, I'm chuffed to bits really. I mean, as uh, as as you all know, being being a writer, it's uh, it's quite nerve wracking when you publish a book, particularly a book that's taken you thirty years to write. And uh, and the reviews come out quite well. It's always a real challenge, actually, getting the book right, getting the story right, getting the narrative arc right, getting the key idea right, and then expressing it in a way that's attractive to readers. I mean, it's uh, who would be a writer? But I have to say, it's 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 had a really positive impact, and I'm really really pleased with the with the responses that I've had. In short, it's the story of the war in the Far East. But I've taken a slightly different angle. I've asked slightly different questions. And I've come to the conclusion that actually the war in the Far East would not have been successful for the Allies without India, without free India doing its bit to fight against the Japanese. Two and a half million Indians joined the Indian Armed Forces during the world's largest volunteer army ever assembled in the history of mankind. And they were phenomenally successful in battle against the Japanese. And that's one of the really outstanding lessons that I've picked up from actually studying the Burma campaign for many, many years and not really grasping this fundamental point about who it was that was fighting and why. And it was a great book to to write. And I'm just so pleased that people are enjoying reading it. Well, we're going to have to get you back to talk about that. I'd love to. (laughs) Super, Rob, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Matt. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.